I believe this, uh, this variation of goals, it's also, for me, it's good to, to keep the motivation, to not focus, okay, it's the same as the year before, it's the same as the year before, but to, to change the, the challenges from, from year to year. No, in a, in a long race, you need to pre-plan, especially because if you do by field, you will stop eating, basically, because the, what you need to do is to try to eat as much as you can uh, to fuel yourself, and then it's hard to just keep with that amount of food. In long races, uh, one of the biggest parts is, uh, is motivation. It's what are you... Uh, trying to fight the you are bored at the point of the race because it's long and it's uh, it's painful and, and and it's the motivation is this uh, being uh, having the fire inside and that comes to, to the mind you were listening to Killian Journey my name is JP Alipio and this is the Wildcast podcast the Wildcast podcast I would like to invite all of you to help support the production of the Wildcast podcast by buying us a coffee. All you have to do is go to buymeacoffee.com slash wildcast and buy us a coffee. Buy us two coffees, three, five, ten. All of those coffees will keep us caffeinated and keep us going, creating this content, talking to all of these amazing individuals and sharing their stories with all of you. So go to buymeacoffee.com slash wildcast and buy us a coffee. Welcome back, Wildcast listeners. And can you believe it? This is the 50th episode of the Wildcast podcast. 50 episodes since we started this in 2020 during the pandemic. In fact, the Wildcast still says Quarantine Chronicles. And I think I'll keep it that way for, for a while. And for this episode, I have a very, very, very special guest. And if you are a long-time listener to the Wildcast podcast, you will definitely know who this guest is. And even if you aren't, if you're coming to the Wildcast as a first-time listener, I think you'll have an idea of who this special guest is on the 50th episode of the Wildcast podcast. And of course, without further ado... My special guest for today, for this special 50th milestone of the podcast, is no other than the GOAT himself, the best ultra runner, the best mountain runner, the best trail runner uh, on earth over the last two decades, Killian Journey. Uh, I am such a lucky person and such a uh, this this was really uh, a pleasure, you know, to be able to interview, to be able to talk to Kilian, not just about his athletic journey, but also about the passions that he has gone through uh, throughout his life, you know. Uh, significantly as well, his work as an environmentalist, as someone who cares deeply about the places that we play in, not just he plays in, but everybody, everybody who listens to this podcast, everybody on earth, really. Um, it's a very unique thing as someone of his stature to be to be an activist, to be someone who is very much aware of 
his own personal impact on the world, his family's personal impact on the world, and the voice that he has been gifted because of the abilities that he has. Um, Killian is really special, a really special person, not just for you know being the best mountain athlete on earth. I mean, last year he ran arguably one of his best years running uh, you know the UTMB and Hard Rock and also importantly running really short races really fast not very many athletes uh, can do that you know you run a 20-30k mountain run mountain race and then you run a 100 mile mountain race and then win at both you know that's, that's a very very rare thing one of the other things that we discuss is, of course, his new brand, Normal, um, and uh, the message that the brand has for its consumers. You know, the the special, very well thought out uh, nature of how Killian came up with the brand, how the team is behind the brand, what the advocacies of the brand are, and what he wants consumers to take away from owning a pair of normal shoes, you know? I mean, it's not just a performance shoe, it's a message. It's really a message. And you'll, you'll listen to it throughout this podcast, um, myself and Killian talking about why normal is the way it is, why Killian has pursued this as uh, a new phase in his life. And, uh, well, without further ado, I won't, I won't really talk so much about this introduction because I think you all want to be listening to this conversation with Killian Journey. So welcome to the 50th episode of the Wildcast Podcast. And thank you all for listening for this long. And here you are, Killian Journey on the Wildcast Podcast. Hi, Kelian. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. So welcome to the Wildcast podcast. No, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. We've, of course, we've been following your career over the many years that you've been, uh, you've been a mountain athlete. And it's just amazing, uh, especially for us here in Asia. There's um, a lot of the Asian trail runners and mountain athletes have been following your career ever since you started, essentially in the 2000s. So uh, I think a lot of people will be very interested in what you can share and what you can uh, uh, say to all of the Asian and uh, the audience of the Wildcast podcast. So thank you so much. No, thanks. It's uh, I, I haven't been racing a lot in Asia lately, but it's uh, all the times I've been like um, in, um, especially uh, in Borneo for the Klimbaton or like uh, um uh obviously been more like in the Himalayas. That's it's places where probably for Western people they are not that well known, but it offers like such different like mountains and landscapes that uh, it's uh, it's for sure a place to to visit more and more. That's right, that's right. We've had some Europeans come over to Asia and they they say one difference from Europe is especially in the area where I'm from, is there's pine trees, but there's also rice terraces right beside the pine pine forest. So that's a very unique uh, thing here in Asia. That's for sure. So it's, it's basically safe to say you're a creature of the mountains. You started going into the outdoors uh, very young. 
you summited the uh, three thousand meter peaks in the Pyrenees before you were even five years old. Um, do you think this early exposure to the outdoors led you on this current path? I mean, you could have easily followed a different path, obviously, but but you are here now uh, as yourself, no, Killian Journey, uh, mountain athlete after so many years. Yeah, I didn't. I, I think I didn't have much choice in a way that uh, it's. Uh... Like uh, my parents uh, were like, they love mountains. They were practicing a lot of different mountain sports. And um, and that was natural for us. Like, uh, for me, my sister as kids, like we were just going out to play in the mountains. And, and that led to, to uh, yeah, to a connection with these environments where like we feel that it's home. So then it's um, it was very natural to, to finish doing like uh, mountain sports and um, then, like professionally, it just happened that uh, that I started to do it. But anyway, I think if I wasn't like a professional athlete, I would be still like doing climbing and running, and, and, and because it's it's who am I and, and and where I feel like home. And you've been doing it for so long. I mean, much longer than most athletes of when you started. Essentially, a lot of the athletes when you started, they're no longer uh, in the sport. Uh, if I if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, you started sometime in 1999, I think, uh, com- competitively. Yeah, I, I started like uh, 99, 2000. That was the year I started doing like a ski mountaineering competitions, and um, then it, it was like in junior categories and that. But uh, then um, trail running more focused because that was more on ski mountaineering, and then I was just running in the summer for like uh, training. And I think it was 2006 where I started to take seriously also like trail running to do both seasons at the same level. And and you've been in the sport so long. How do you uh, basically how how have you stayed uh, competitive for 20, 20 years? Essentially, you've been competitive at the highest level for the twenty years. That not very many athletes have that kind of longevity. So, what do you attribute yours to? Uh, to staying this long? Well, I think it comes down everything to to have a sustainable training. That means that you are doing um, what you can handle on the, on the long run, that it's something that it makes adaptations. If you start to get injured or have problems season after season, that means that the training you are doing is not sustainable. So like, I think I've been good on like listening to my body and knowing which kind of training it works for me and which not. And doing um, doing in a way that uh, that uh, that my body can handle it, and that way I could like um, just uh, keep training um, and focusing on on the motivation to to see what is motivating me today. And and I think that because I don't like to to center in what kind of um, um, discipline, but I like to do short, long, and more technical, less technical. It's easy to get motivation and to get challenges from, from yeah, trying different, different kind of races, different like uh, goals. Uh, so for the motivation thing, that also is key to, to to variate a bit what's the what's the goal season after season. I would like to invite all of you to help support the production of the Wildcast podcast by buying us a coffee. All you have to do is go to buymeacoffee.com slash wildcast and buy us a coffee. Buy us two coffees, three, five, ten. All of those coffees will keep us 
caffeinated and keep us going, creating this content, talking to all of these amazing individuals and sharing their stories with all of you. So go to buymeacoffee.com slash wildcast and buy us a coffee. So you were discussing how uh, you've kept yourself competitive over the many years that you've been uh, in trail running and mountain running, mountaineering and schemo. So maybe you can expound a little bit on that. Yeah, I believe uh, when it comes to longevity, it's very based on having a sustainable training. That means that uh, you are doing an amount and a charge of training that is sustainable on the time, that uh, it don't, um, makes you injured. And that's um, that's on like uh, if you are like uh, getting some injuries every season or feeling very tired at some point of the season, year after year, year after year, it means that it's not sustainable. So trying to have a a training that uh, it creates adaptations every year that's uh, that's key and also motivation. Like uh, I, I like to do different kind of uh, races, long, short, some more technical things, and I believe this. Uh, this variation of goals, it's also, for me, it's good to to keep the motivation, to not focus, okay, it's the same as the year before, it's the same as the year before, but to to change the, the challenges for, um, from year to year. And I noticed it actually took you a little bit of time to go from a sky, being a sky runner to doing a lot of ultra marathons. And uh, by comparison, a lot of athletes these days, they jump right into ultramarathons immediately. And, and I think maybe that's something that has um, led to the sustainability of your career. Uh, it, it took a few years before you jumped to the ultra distances rather than go immediately into the longer distances. Well, mostly I would say that I had never stopped the short distances because like I was running some like 70K races when I was like uh, 13 years old. And then like uh, UTMB at uh, 19 years old. But I never say, okay, I want to do only ultra now. I was uh, doing like uh, still doing vertical kilometers, um, short um, uh, races. So, and I think when it was going to training, my training was always for short distance. And then like it happens that I was doing an ultra race, but the training was always focusing on, on short distance to keep the speed, to keep the 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 bo2 max to to keep these um these characteristics uh, of the training and this uh, um yeah this level of performance to do short distance and then the long distance you're just just doing it but never think okay now i i want to do only long distance uh, the opposite it was like always focusing on being on shape for the short and doing the long uh, on the side of it. And and I notice also that sort of every other year you sort of vary the types of events that you join in general. You you do one year where there's a lot of long distance events and then the next year it's either you focus on your projects which are the you know the summits of your life project and and the shorter distance projects that you do. Uh, is this a conscious choice on your part to to do to pattern your seasons in this in this manner? Mm-hmm. It's it's been changing a lot. Like I would say, at the first years, I was just doing as much as I could. Like uh, from especially two thousand eight to two thousand fourteen, fifteen, I was doing like 
between ski mountaineering and trail running, I was doing uh, like 50 races a year. So every weekend, uh, basically, I was doing a race. And and then there it was a lot of different things. So like short distance, long distance, some ultras. Uh, even some years, I think like 2010, 11, I was doing like five, six ultras on top of like 40 races short distance. So it was a lot of racing during those years. But then I was young, like recovery is fast. I didn't go, did good performances when it comes to time, but I was like doing good results. So I could sustain that. Um, and then like motivations was switching more into like focusing more on the performance and not on the results. So I was training more and racing less. Mm, so like uh, the training was switching more into into that. And then it, it really depends the year, like every year, like around that time in November, December, I decide what I want to do next year. And some years I feel more motivated on like some mountaineering or some on like competition. And it depends also like what we want to do with the family. Like if we want to stay more around home, then I will focus more on races. If we plan to do some more like travel to, to do some more expedition. So it, and then it comes to a compromise between what are my goals, what um, what I'm motivated for, and what we want to do with the family. How how have you varied your training as you've aged? Uh, obviously, when you were younger, as you said, recovery is very quick. And as as you age, I mean, now you're 34, still very young, actually, for for endurance athletes. But I'm sure there has been some changes in how you train and how you race as you've uh, grown more mature in the sport. Yeah, on training, uh, it changed basically because I race less so I can train more. And that's a huge difference. I would say because if you are racing every weekend, your shape, like you have maybe one month build up, like for me, it was like November, December, and then it was racing every weekend on skis and then on running. So then basically it was just racing. It, it was giving me the, the shape. Um, I was able to train a bit between races, but not like having proper build-ups. Uh, and now I'm, I have more like long-term build-up plans. So like, uh, I can have like one, two, three months of preparation for before the season. That's a, that's a big difference. Um, and then like focusing more, of course, on recovery, like to listen a bit more on like what the, the body is, um, is saying. And what I really changed, I would say, in the last uh, three, four years, it's been more on, like, the nutrition side, to be more aware of, like, uh, what uh, should I eat for um, for racing, for training, and, and for health, and, and for recovery, basically. I think uh, it has a big, um, a big uh, difference, the, the food you eat on recovery. And also on racing, uh, the last years, I have been performing much better on long distance, and I think that's uh, mostly because... Uh, because the nutrition. I noticed um, watching the UTMB a few months ago that uh, during the aid station stops, you had someone take your blood or or you had some sort of test at the aid stations. And uh, what was this for? And as you say, you, you're trying to dial in your nutrition, doing the science behind uh, what you need, what your body needs. Uh, can you explain some of that? Yeah, that was actually um, Jesus Alvarez Herms. He's a physiologist, uh, from um, from Spain, he's a biologist and physiologist, and he he was doing a study, uh, or he's doing a study on um, different things that change on races and and, and on training. So uh, 
he yeah we have been doing tests on um, different things like microbiota uh, before and after races we did that at Zegaman then at UTMB and then at UTMB also because the race like it's long and you don't go that fast in the aid stations um, uh, we were also doing some tests like it was like testing the the lactate testing the the cholesterol um, testing the glycogen and and then like a bunch of other tests so it was not for having inputs during the race because that uh, we didn't know like it was just to do the test and and to to have it but to study for the future for um yeah for some studies that's that's really interesting um and you talk about microbiota of you know, basically uh does it change can you share some of the results there um yeah we we haven't does it change like pre and post race yeah we haven't um uh, put everything down because it's a lot of information to to process and and, and we are not yet uh, there, like we are just start analyzing the 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 test yet, but yeah, it changed. Like uh, of course, like a uh, uh, microbiota change depending on what you eat, depending on the exercise you have, depending on your different hormonal activity, on where you are, and and a race is a big uh, effort for the body, so it's interesting to see how it's changing. So we haven't uh, dialed down like the results of uh, of the test, but uh, yeah. It definitely changed like every different stress on the body and, and of course like a, a competition and, and at that uh, grade of intensity it's uh, it's a big stress to the body and can you share some of your like nutrition tactics during the race was it more uh, carbohydrates was uh, protein involved in in your fueling for a race like the UTMB is it something uh, that you pre-plan or do you do it by feel during during the race? No, in a, in a long race, you need to pre-plan, especially because if you do by feel, you will stop eating basically because the what you need to do is to try to eat as much as you can uh, to fuel yourself. And then it's hard to just keep with that amount of food. Um, but uh, basically the idea was to have a, a minimum intake that was around... Um, like the, the amount of energy of uh, 90, 100, 110 carbohydrates per hour. And that was uh, not only in carbohydrates, but also like on, on fat. Um, I'm a very good fat responder. So I was trying to take some like uh, avocado or uh, nuts and, and things like that during the race. Um, and then like to keep... Um, uh, uh, a minimum of um, of carbohydrates with uh, with the drink. Uh, I had uh, the Morten mixed drink, so I was taking ninety grams of carbohydrates on the drink, and then on top of that, I was eating. Either if it was a a, a section where I was not pushing much, I was on top of the drink like putting um, fat uh, and some protein. Or if it was like a section where I needed to push more, then I was uh, adding that on gel. So I was taking a a gel uh, uh, on top of the of the mixed drink. That's that's a lot of calories for most people. Did did you have to train yourself to to be able to absorb that much carbohydrates over you know like every hour? Essentially? I did, but not. Uh, I didn't really do any. I think I did only on the races, like to try to push the the amount of um, of uh, carbs, but not in training. I often eat nothing. I never eat anything, uh, even if I'm like out for seven, eight hours, I never take anything with me. 
And it's important like to, to test like that you can handle this amount of food, like on some trainings or on some races. Doing that every time, every session you do, I think that's bad for the metabolism at the long term. Like you need to, to keep a healthy metabolism and and, um, and if you are eating a lot on all the trainings, I don't think that's uh, that's good. But you need to absolutely like uh, do some testings that to see that you, how much you can handle on the race. And if you are not able to handle like uh, 90, 100, then maybe it's important to do some training before the race, but not to not that that becomes like something that you do every day, but just like maybe the the month before the race you can do a couple of days a week to, to eat more. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think it's good to do it like every time, every session, every time, because then like when it comes to the metabolism is, is not a good long-term strategy. And as you age now, you've noticed that your recovery is slower. What do you do, um, in terms of getting your body ready for the next race? This season you did, Basically, one big long race, hard rock, and then a short race, and then a long race, and then a short race. So, so how have you adapted your recovery needs to to the age that you're at now, and and essentially the races that you're you're doing? Yeah, this year it's been incredible the recovery, and I think it's uh, it's because smart training first. I think the the best thing to to recover is to train well. Like if you are the, the problem is if you are training like, uh, let's say, uh, I don't know, five hours a week and you are running like 20K or like 50K a week and then you do a ultra race, like you can finish, of course, but uh, you will be destroyed. Like you need to race according to your training. And that's uh, that's my fair rule. Like, uh, and if... If you are racing according to your training, the recovery will be will be fast, will be easy because then you are like it's a bigger it's a bigger stress for your body, but it's not that big the race. So that's the first rule. Like uh, recovery, it's about like uh, smart training first. Secondly, it's about uh, nutrition, like eating well and a lot after after race to recover all what you lost, and and then sleep like. That are the tactics. It's it's not fancy things. I, I don't believe in fancy things that just like the 0.5% that gives you nothing. But like smart training, nutrition and sleep, that's the key. And then like after a race, like mm, just to see, okay, I feel recovered. I feel ready for start training again. I'm waiting until that moment to start really charging, charging hard. But this year, for example, it happened that uh, after hard rock, it took me two days to be able to run again. And then it took me like five days until being able to start training hard again to do double session and to do hard workouts. And that was because, as I mentioned, like good nutrition after the race, good sleep in general, and um, and, and smart training, like to train well, like the month before hard rock. Nice, nice. That's actually a very unique insight, um, racing based on your training, because a lot of people undertrain for the races that that they join and and as as you say they, you know end up pretty much destroyed even if they finish the race uh, myself included that's probably happened to me several times uh over the years and as i mean it's it's interesting how you just keep it simple you know sleep nutrition and proper training for for the recovery uh no need to complicate things with all of these you know um inflatable leg 
things and, and massage and all of these things, which, as you say, is maybe 1% or less than a percent in terms of getting you recovered uh, from the races. Yeah, we, we live in a moment that because we, in general, we don't have time. Uh, we want to to find magical solutions. And, and that comes most of the times from either technology or from um, like uh, very inflated methods. Like uh, that's like, oh, that method, it happens now. and it's, But if you see like what successful people is doing in every sport, uh, running, triathlon, cycling, uh, trail running, every sport, especially in the runs of sports, it's, it's down to the principles. And principles is like training, recovery, nutrition, and, and recovery is sleeping mostly. So then, yeah, it can be a fancy thing that it happens now and it's like, it's a trend for like one year or a couple of months and it might give you something or a, it's more like, I would say, psychological comfort at the end of the things. But if you don't focus on the basics, on like, the, the lot of training, the, 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 the quality of training, that means like uh, volume and it means like a good charge of training in recovery, so sleep and on good nutrition, then the rest, it's, it's just meaningless. It's, uh, uh, yeah, but this thing, it's, uh, it's more fancy, like in social media, it's, uh, it's more fun to say, I did this super session than I was saying, I have been training like four hours every day for 10 years, that's not fun. But if you say like a super session with these kind of intervals, with the recoveries and that, like it's more catchy. Uh, but, uh, but that's not what builds uh, your, your endurance capacities. So you've basically, you have all this stored knowledge over the 20 years of your running and racing. Is there, is there probably a future goal of yours to share this knowledge through maybe coaching, um, You've already written some books about your own training, some blogs. Uh, do you see yourself as going into uh, essentially coaching? A lot of athletes go down this route, uh, coaching uh, amateurs. And, and is this something that you look at, uh, given the body of knowledge that you have? Um, I don't know, seriously. Like uh, right now, I, I don't think about it because like um, um, uh, with the work, with uh, like, Family, training, the foundation, normal, like uh, I cannot add anything more. And I love training. I love uh, science, uh, but I do it by myself. And then I also think like if you want to do smart coaching, that means that you cannot coach more than two or three persons. Uh, if not, it's it's okay. You give like uh, templates, but, uh, but I wouldn't be happy with myself because I think, okay, I, it's not like, individualized is not like personalized uh, it's good for most of the people but uh, but i think uh, training should be very unique to each person because each person have different physiology the different metabolism different genetics and it needs to go down to that um and i don't know if uh, i will yeah it's something that interests me a lot but i don't know if i will be coaching people or just like uh, i also like a lot the research um, the studying part. So that's something that, of course, I will continue doing, but I don't know what, what, what kind of level of, uh, of uh, time implication from my side, yeah. And you're, you're a very competitive person, but uh, when I watch you race, you seem to race with more of a sense of adventure than 
competition in a way. Like you're you're looking at the landscape. You're always chatting with with uh, the not just the racers but also the people on the course. It's more of a, an adventure for you to be out in the mountains rather than simply um, simply just racing. Um, what would you attribute this sort of adventure biased side of uh, of your competitiveness? Well, like I would say, in short distances, you go full gas. There is not much thing. But uh, in long races, uh, one of the biggest parts is uh, is motivation. It's what are you uh, trying to fight? The you are bored at the point of the race because it's long and it's uh, it's painful and 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 it's the motivation is this uh, being uh, having the fire inside and that comes to to the mind. And if in a race like you are trying to be in your bubble for 20 hours, that will rarely happen. But if you are just thinking, okay, I'm just out here, I'm enjoying the landscape, I'm looking to these mountains, I'm talking to these people, I'm just having fun, then maybe it happens that the first 15 hours you are just like going out for a, like enjoying. And then when you need to race, it's only the last three, four hours, and then you can be in your bubble. But uh, most of the part, like you are just like having fun out there, like having a nice hike out, and then like uh, uh, that way you you had passed like uh, 10, 15, uh, 20 hours of the race uh, without thinking that you are racing. That's a very good way of looking at things. Um, and you're a very vocal environmentalist. You've made a very conscious and public effort to live a more sustainable lifestyle. Can you expound on what you do now for yourself, for your family, uh, in order to be uh, more sustainable? Well, like uh, sports, um, uh, it's a uh, sports lifestyle is not a, a very sustainable lifestyle, I would say, especially for like a, uh, in a competitive level, because it's based a lot on traveling. Uh, so uh, our biggest footprint, it's, it's on traveling. And it's try to understand first what it is. Um, now, uh, my, my current footprint is around like uh, eight tons of CO2 per year of emissions. In the past, it, it has been like 20 tons per year. Uh, and it's mostly like with uh, my family, we live uh, uh, in a farm where like we grow part of uh, our food, where uh, we have a uh, good isolation in the house, where we don't use a lot of energy and then like here in Norway almost the, the 99% of the energy is renewable so we have um, not much expenses uh, when it comes to to the, the, the footprint of our um, housing or of our food like also being uh, vegetarians but uh, it's almost everything on, on, on traveling on races so in the last years uh, my uh, what I can find comfortable today with it is to do like one international travel per year. That means that if I go to Himalayas that year, I will not do any other race outside Europe. Uh, or if I, last year I was going to, to Hard Rock to do um, a race in the US. So that means that I will not do any other international race. Like uh, it could be like Thailand for the world championship, or it could be like a reunion Island or like to go to Himalayas to climb. That's not possible that year because I had already done one international travel and then uh, to just like, uh, yeah, try to, to, to travel the less possible, to do 
just these races or projects that I find very meaningful and all the rest of the competitions uh, to do local races. So just to do like three, four races uh, or projects a year that I find that they are the key races to to allow myself to 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 travel there uh, to Europe or uh, and one internationally and the rest to do like uh, just um, local races. Locally, yeah. Doesn't that though limit you as a as a basically as a professional athlete, especially in trail running where races are based on basically local geography? You know, uh, uh, doesn't that limit you in terms of your professional growth as an elite athlete? And is this okay with you? Essentially, you would make less money um, doing less races uh, rather than doing more races. Mm, yes, but uh, but it's a uh we need to go that direction in a way because if not like it's just like uh it's not uh it's not possible like uh, the the planet has uh, uh, an amount of resources and and we cannot like uh overcome that for for long because uh, uh of course like uh, if i race more like i it's not really that you win a lot of race, uh, money in the races but uh, also like sponsorships like uh what are the sponsors you have? What uh, are the, the compromises there? Like if you need to, to do travel for them, if you need to, that's a lot. Mostly I would say in, for professional athletes, the traveling is one part for the visibility, but also then is like uh, not only for racing, but also like for, for sponsorships or all that. But at the end of the day is like, what's the goal? Like to make that much money or to have like this carbon footprint? And it's to find a compromise in between, I would say, because of course, like, I am in a very good and easy situation where I, 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 yeah, I earn more money that I need today. So uh, what would give me to earn more money? Mm, I will not change how I live. Like I will not change my lifestyle. So it's uh, it's only to to have more in the bank account. So it's uh, it's really that something important for me, or like uh, okay, I have money to live and. Uh, then I, I prefer to 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 earn time, earn quality of life, and if I can do that, or, or if that uh, is leading towards a more sustainable uh, way of living, that's a plus. And I think um, for younger athletes, it's a bit more difficult because they they probably are not earning uh, as much money, or like they don't have the security of like having a, a lifestyle. Um, uh, sustainable economically for the long term so they they will need to accept the sponsorships they will need to 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 do some some more races uh, when it comes to travels and then it's it's up to us i would say the 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 older athletes and also the the organizers of the circuits the federations to ensure that the the calendars we make they uh, they have a sense also ecologically that is not a nonsense when it comes to to the carbon emissions. And that's something that we need to work together, I would say, to to ensure that if a young athlete wants to do like a full season, that doesn't mean that it's just burning CO2 uh, crazily. Right, right. Especially now where events essentially span the entire planet. You know, there the world championships in Thailand and there's races all the way in New Zealand and all of these places. And and it's an interesting take that you you mentioned this that it seems you're very content 
in where you are. And uh, I think that's that's key, no? In terms of sustainability is contentment and not really needing to earn so much, just earning enough that you can live. There's a little bit of extra for your for your family and for whatever else you want to do. And uh, that's basically what's enough, what's enough for somebody. You know? Yeah, but th- th- that's for sure. But that's very easy to say from my point of, like from my side, because like I'm, 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 a, I'm a wealthy person. Like I don't, I don't need to think about, okay, next month, how I will do to my foot or that. So it's, that's, uh, that's very easy to say. And I think, but it, we are also the ones that we need to make more effort. Uh, I would say like it's this, uh, 10% of the, of the more wealthy people of the planet, uh, that we, yeah, we need to, to make bigger efforts and the, and the 1%, they should make more efforts because like, it's like, we need to make more efforts and especially the ones that we are not, uh, on, um, on a danger when it comes to, to, to economical sustainability, it's it's to us to 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 make the bigger changes and then to try to to influence uh, the industry and the and the policies. So the the people that they cannot make that choice because they they need to think about the the health of the family. They need to think about about uh, fueling, about uh, uh, warming, about uh, all that. That uh, on doing that they have a lower footprint, but that comes to changing policies and changing the industry. Uh, and that we can influence. But of course, the ones that we need to make more effort, it's the ones that uh, we we have a economical, uh, yeah, a sustainability on, on, our econo- on our economy. So we, we can make that choice. We can decide to have less. And, and talking about industry, you just started a new brand, uh, N-Normal, uh, a brand that you you crafted with with friends and, and your community, um, you've you've basically gone from you you helped Salomon essentially grow into what it is today. And what what was it that made you decide that to leave the sort of the comforts of of the Salomon uh, ecosystem and start and uh, normal as as the brand of your own. Well, like I'm, I'm, I'm very, very thankful for what we've done together with Salomon, and and um, I, I probably helped Salomon to grow, but they helped me also a lot to 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 grow as a as an athlete, as a as a public person, and I think uh, like it's a lot of friends in there. Like uh, I talk with them often, and and it's a, it's a very good relation. Um, mostly, it was like I wanted to do things differently on a way uh, to try to do like I'm. I always been like pretty geeky when it comes to gear. Uh, it's something that I love, and and I, uh, I I love to be the yeah developing ideas and concepts and and, and prototypes. So that's something that uh, I always thought about the possibility of like doing by myself. But then it's very difficult when it comes to to the reality. Um, so it was more like a, a dream that I knew that it will never happen, but then it happened the opportunity that I met the people in Camper and they had kind of the same idea and, and we were aligned on the, on the values on where we wanted to see the industry in the future. And, and we say, yeah, it's, it's the moment to do it. And, and it was more that we align with, I found the good persons, uh, to, to start the project like that. And, and 
yeah, it's mostly, yeah, I think we need to, to, to change how the industry is in the, in the outdoors. And it's good that it's many, many brands that they are doing super good things. And, and we want to, to also, um, uh, give a bit, some ideas, some, some concepts. Uh, and I think that's, uh, we cannot today, we cannot like work each brand at, uh, at their side, but we need to collaborate together. And I think good ideas should be, um, transversal. All the brands should be able to use. And, and, and I think when it comes to cooperation on what brands do, it's how we can change the outdoor industry. Nice. And I, I, I read this very unique thing about normal. Uh, you talk about durability a lot, uh, the durability of your shoes. You use basically one pair of shoes for racing this whole season. and But there is one, one term that you mentioned called emotional durability of the product, which is very unique. It's the first time I've actually heard it. And essentially, you plan not to change the product so often, year on year, uh, just so you don't force this this cycle of consumerism on people uh it's in, in a way it's sort of not good for the market if you if you think about it you're you're not encouraging people to buy more of your shoes essentially unlike other brands but then there's also that sustainability part where you can use the shoe over multiple seasons and it's the same shoe the same design not just durable uh, material, but also durable in terms of its its uh, the concept, the design, something that people will want over a longer period of time, rather than chuck after one season or one 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 race. Yeah, I believe that durability is is, is a key when it comes to sustainability because. Uh, of course, we should use better materials. We should use uh, materials that they are more, um, um, they have a, a lower footprint when it comes to, to the carbon impact, but also to the natural resources. But if those uh, uh, products, they don't last long, then you are just adding more products to the, to the landfill at the end or, or to recycle, which is also like have a big, um, it, uh, it has a, a footprint in the recycling. So, uh, me and also like a camper, so normal, we really believe in durability as, as, as key on, on, on sustainability. But as you mentioned, like physically, like products need to last and that's, uh, that's one thing, but also like emotionally and, and that's, uh, it's not a new concept, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's some brands that they are doing it very well on not updating collections and on uh, changing, like if you have a design that it, it's working well, you don't need to change in the the year after. You can change it like uh, either uh, when you find better materials, and you can change just the material, maybe not the design, or you can change the design if you find the better functionality. But um, but not not planning on every year we are changing everything. So you create the emotional need to 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 buy it to have the new one because yours feels old. But uh, when you are designing a product, thinking, okay, I'm not designing it for the next season, but uh, I'm designing for for the next five or ten years. So when it comes to the design with the colors, you are thinking about, uh, will that be okay wearing it in ten years? Is the color that I'm choosing something that it's uh, for that? Or it's just because 
it's the color of the season or it's the color of uh, the the market right now and i think these uh, these uh, decisions are are important when it comes also to sustainability because uh, yeah we need to to create probably a, a slower purchase um uh yeah uh, a slower purchase in general like people buys less that that means that probably uh if they are better products that they are more durable uh and that not only on the outdoor industry but i i'm thinking on on all the industries that might means that uh, we need to think differently when it comes to prices too like now we are used to prices that they are very low on many things which in general it means that uh, probably the products are not very good or and that can be either on the materials it can be on the on the workforces on the on the payment of the of the workers um and and it's based on like you just consume like for especially in like fast fashion like you consume like a t-shirt for two uses and then throw it so it don't need to be a good material and we need to change that into like more slow, um, slow purchasing. So like we are earning, uh, we are owning less equipment, less materials, less things, but we are keeping them for longer. But how does this affect the bottom line of the company though? Isn't it uh, as a company, you'd like to essentially sell more and with what you're doing, you sell less, you sell fewer, uh, higher quality, maybe a little higher price, uh, but you do sell fewer. So how do you look at this in terms of the sustainability of your company as a business? Yeah, no, that's that's very important because if the company is not sustainable economically, it uh, it don't work. Like uh, you cannot pay the workers, you cannot pay the, the, the providers with the materials. So then, then it's not, uh, it's not working. So, uh, and if we want a sustainable both uh, ecologically and, and economically in the future, uh, we need to have industries that they they are able to to produce long lasting products, but that they are uh, they have a business model that allows that. And I think it's it's working a lot on the business model, uh, and that's uh, not only on on selling more to the same people, but to to have uh, a way that uh, that yeah you can sell less, but maybe in the future we will. Um, come back to to repairing and repairing it can be also like a, like when you go to your cobbler uh, you you are paying him to repair your uh, your shoes or you are paying uh, if you go to a sailor you are paying him to to repair your jacket and that's something that we need to to take into account like uh, what's the yeah I think the industry in the future it will look very different when it comes to that and and, and also like if we want an economy to be more spread around uh, all the community all the people we need also these uh, these works where yeah it's not only um, one company that it's uh, earning everything and just like making uh, fast products but it's uh, the economy is spread more into the society and I think that's also the roles of, of companies to have a, that the workforce of the company it's uh, it's having uh, good living wages and that comes to to all the services that uh, that can offer, not only the product. That's very interesting that you talk about the business model as a sustainable 
uh, system. Not it's it's basically you're talking about the management system and not just the product itself as being sustainable. So it's it's really a cyclical business model that you're looking at from from production all the way to repair and, and ensuring that at all points of the business you're actually doing good work, you know, paying proper wages, um, making sure that your products are are repairable. Uh, I saw that the sole is one piece. The, you don't see that so much now. Uh, a lot of the shoes that I own have like multiple rubber pieces underneath. So when one part comes off, it's actually very hard to to resole. Um, so you've purposely designed it around this system where at some point people will repair it. And then uh, the business model that you've created is there to, to do the repairs and to do the that essentially be part of that cycle in, in the product cycle of, of your brand. Yeah, and I think it's important to design simple products. Uh, I, I think we misconcept simple with uh, low quality or with easy, but it's it's very difficult to make a simple product, I would say, uh, because we can improve the performance of a product either with like uh, just adding features that uh, that we put them there or trying to, to, to think a lot into how we can make this product very performant, uh, simply. And that's, uh, that's very complicated. It's very complicated to make simple products. But uh, when you are able to find the good shapes, the good materials, the good uh, way to the patterns of the product that they are simple, but they work perfectly, then it's, uh, it's a win-win because you make a product that it's uh, it's performing often better because it has less uh, less material so it means that it has uh, less weight that it has uh, less um, um, hard points or like uh, problematic points but also that it's repairable that uh, if a, a piece falls apart uh, you can uh, yeah you can repair it and um, and that's uh, that's key I think on the development to to try to make things uh, simple, but that uh, that's very complicated when it comes to design. And you're in a very unique position uh, because of who you are, because of your your long history in the sport. You're in a very unique position to influence not just uh, Normal as a brand, but also other companies, uh, including Salomon, your old company. Uh, to go the same way as uh, normal is essentially going. Uh, how do you see that uh, as an advocacy uh, of yourself and, and the people uh, part of the company? Well, I think it's um, it's important, especially if, as this to to push the brands to to go to that, and and it's our role to like. Many times we think that uh, uh, an ambassador of a brand is to only do work from the brand to 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 the um, to the followers of the sport, to the the the, um, uh, the, the practitioners, to the community, but uh, it should also be the other way around. Like it should be the ambassador have an important role into the company to push into certain directions. And I think that's something that athletes need to realize that their role is uh, in both directions. And, um, and it's uh, more and more clear. And I think more athletes are like uh, doing a good mm-hmm. work on that. And for a very long time, you've been very outspoken. You've 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 started the Killian Journey Foundation as an environmental organization. Um, how 
how have you dealt with being this in this in this way an activist uh, in terms of an activist athlete essentially is what you are it's not a very common thing in terms of athletes be, being activists normally uh, athletes are told to stay in their lane they're, they're they're told to you know this isn't a this isn't something athletes should be talking about let's say climate change or or human rights or things like this. Uh, how do you deal with this as as uh, as an athlete and as an ambassador of the sport? Well, first that it's our responsibility because like if if I have a platform with like, I don't know, like a, a million or two millions of people that I are um, following me, that means that I have responsibility to, to, to that. And it's what's the use of, of having this platform is to like, I'm very happy with my ego. Like I, uh, like, so it's, it's, if you use this platform only for your ego, like it's, uh, it's pretty useless. So like what I can use that platform is to, uh, and then it comes to, to interest. Like, uh, some people find social interest or environmental interest or that, but it's important that we use these platforms to, to that problem is that in general, like, Mm, because we we are not perfect. Like uh, I, my carbon footprint, as I mentioned before, is eight tons uh, per year. And if we want to have a um, a sustainable future, we need to go down to two tons uh, of uh, CO two emissions per year. Uh, so my footprint is it's 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 high, it's big, but that don't means that uh, we should not talk about it. We should not express our concerns. We should not express what we are doing and what we want to do, what we are seeing. And that's the problem that, of course, like if public persons uh, as athletes, we talk about something, it will be a lot of uh, critics and, and it's right, it's correct, but that shouldn't stop us to 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 talk, to, to discuss about these topics. And I think most of the athletes, is not that they don't have interest about something, but is that they have fear of talking about uh, social or um, environmental issues because uh, we are not perfect. But uh, I think it's um, uh, it's the poll, like Protect Our Winters. It's a, it's a, a non-profit uh, uh, founded by different athletes, skiers, and they are doing mostly political lobbying about uh, environmental. And they, they have something that uh, it's very interesting. They say they are... Um, unperfect activists. So they are not perfect activists, but they are activists nevertheless, and they are working well, and they are achieving great things. And it's it's not you can talk even if you are not like a perfect example. But uh, we need to talk, and we need to to yeah to just uh, spread our ideas and concerns, and that's uh, that's how we do. And I think it's yeah it's important to to do it and to use the platforms we have for something better than, than talk about our results and our victories and, and what we do daily. And now you've, you've essentially, you're, you're starting to age. You're still very competitive. You're still at the top of your sport. I saw your post, I think it was yesterday or was it today about the 80 year old man going up, uh, uh, Nesaksla, is it Nesaksla? Nesaksla, yeah. It's not the English language, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and essentially, how do you see yourself as an aging, you know, athlete uh, into the sport? How do you see that future of yours? Will you be like that 80 year old man? Um, essentially, 
hiking up every day, something with 700 elevation gain in a 40 degree slope. <laughs> so, I hope, I hope. Like I, uh, I'm so admirative of when I go to races and you see these people that it's like 70, 80, 90 years old, or uh, like uh, I have some friends that uh, they are like 80 some and they are st- still climbing like big walls and, and big mountains. And that's so cool. Like, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the, life goal like is to to be able to 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 do these things so it means that you are healthy and then you keep the motivation and that's uh, that's the angle I, I know that at some point like my level will start to decrease but that uh, i will not retire I, I will never retire like it's it's just like i will just run slower but keep running and, and keep climbing mountains because that's uh, that's the fun of it it's not about like what you are achieving, but what are you feeling when you are out in the mountains? That's interesting. I have a friend I actually talked to recently as well. And he's also like an aging guy, a French guy who goes into the mountains on his own. And I said, what's going to happen when you get older? You know, you're, you're almost turning 60. Uh, and he just told me, it's okay. I'll just go slower. You know, what used to take me one hour, it'll take me five hours. And that's fine. As long as I get there, it's still, it's still something uh, for himself. Um, just like, just like you said, essentially. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, never understood the retirement thing. And it's like, and then what, we do that for fun. So fun, it's not about like the time we are doing, but about what we are experiencing. And now you, you have two kids, um, you, your sport essentially takes you out into the mountains. How has being a dad, being a family man, uh, changed, uh, the way you do your sport? How does it changed your perception of risk. You've done a lot of things that would be essentially quite risky. Um, you've had friends who have gone ahead, you know, uh, because of, uh, we all know that the mountains are risky uh, in certain times. And how has having children essentially changed your perception of risk and and the way you go about your sport? Mm, not much. Like, I... I didn't know how it would change me because that's something that you cannot plan in advance. Um, to yeah, the, the perception with uh, with risk or the risk management, but I think I'm someone that it's uh, I'm very um, I try to be objective all the time, and uh, when I'm taking a decision of I'm doing that or not, or I'm going to this expedition and, and the decision taking at the end, it always comes down to to trying to to analyze all the situations or all the possible outcomes all the probabilities and and all that so i it haven't changed uh, at all my my activities but it changed like other things like uh uh when it comes to like driving before i was doing some crazy things like driving 30 hours from like uh, spain to norway like in a non-stop and that i would never do now because it's it's like it's too stupid or like when it comes to to food, or like even like uh, we were living in Chamonix, that it's a super beautiful valley, but the pollution there is crazy. Like it's one of the worst places in France for pollution. And right now with kids, I would not want to live uh, there anymore, for example. So it's more like on these other risks on life that uh, I, I'm more aware about it. Um, that's how it changed mostly. But in the mountains, it's the same, I think, because I was... Yeah, I I've been in risky situations, but I always yeah had the the knowledge that I was there and why. Like 
not when I was young, but the last five, 10 years, I would say, yeah, it was like that, that I, I tried to analyze pretty much. And then it didn't change because it was like very, uh, um, yeah, a conscious risk mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I was taking. That's interesting because uh, you, you basically talk about it as this is your expertise. You know a lot about the risks in the mountains and it's already managed based on, like like you said earlier, you you race the way you train. So you go into the mountains because of all that experience, all of that uh, background knowledge that you've essentially built up over the 20 plus years of you exploring it yourself. So it's almost normal uh, in that sense for you. Yeah, no, and especially, yeah, in the mountains is more important because in a race, if you are like thinking, okay, I'm capable of uh, doing like 100 miles, but I don't train, then the worst thing that can happen is that uh, you don't finish, that uh, you have cramps, that you vomit, and you and you you need to go back home with the ego like uh, very low and and just go and cry. But if uh, it happens that in the mountains, if you are saying, okay, I can climb this route uh, and and you don't train for it, and you go there, you will die. So it's not that you go home crying, but you will die. So it's uh, it's more important to train and to prepare yourself to what you are doing because if not, it's not a second chance. Right, right. And just as a last question, is there something you want to still achieve in your in your career, in your outdoor career? Is there a goal, like a big goal? It's many goals, like uh, it's many ideas I have, it's many projects in the mind. Um, but I don't feel the need of something, like I don't feel the stress of I want to win the race or I want to do this thing before I finish my career. That's something that I'm I'm very happy and I'm very proud of what I've done and I don't feel the necessity of uh, winning this race or this other race or do this project. Now, if I do something, it's mostly because it's fun. I think it will be interesting, but I don't feel the necessity of like doing it. Um, But then ideas, yeah, like the problem is that it's every day, like I got new ideas and then you don't have the time to do it all, but uh, it's just like to write in a in a notebook. Okay, that can be fun to do sometime. And that's all, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Kilian, for your time. I understand, uh, of course, that you have a lot of things to do today. And uh, thank you for sharing uh, this one hour, uh, sharing your life, sharing your passions with us uh, for the Wildcast podcast. And I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. No, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And there you go. That was Killian Journey, the greatest mountain athlete, mountain runner of all time. What did you think? Um, I mean, let me know. Uh, send me an email, or you know, comment on this uh, on this podcast. I think you know. I came off of this conversation realizing how I mean, how truly human he is, despite all. Achievements. I mean, despite all of what he's achieved in life, all of what um, I mean, you know, he's climbed Everest, the fastest known time. He's run all the biggest races on Earth and won all of them, uh, whether they're short, they're long, uh, schemo, trail running, ultra running. Um, Killian has done that, and now going towards this part of his life where. He started this new company. He's made his 
environmental and ecological advocacy a centerpiece of the company, not just a side piece, you know. Thinking about things like shoe longevity, uh, how long you're going to use his sh- the shoes. I mean, you know, he ran in one pair of shoes for all his races in 2022. Uh, how many of us have done that? I have like, I don't know, 10 pairs of trail running shoes, which, you know, I, I use a few pairs a week. Uh, and for a lot of runners, I think, you probably have an average of at least five uh, shoes. You know, it's, it's a very consumer culture uh, that we have. And here you have the greatest athlete of all time with two pairs of shoes. <laughs> he has one for racing and one for training. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's really something amazing. Um, I'd also like to touch on how he talked about um, this... Um, emotional sustainability or you know the product sustainability in a way where he designs the products that will last over time the design that will last over time not something that is seasonal you know that that's 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 really something that's really some something different you know um how many brands do you know will design a timeless product that will not make you want to buy a new product next season. I mean, every single brand wants to push you a new product next season. But here you have normal pushing a product that's white, that's black, something that will last you, I don't know, three seasons. If you're not as prolific a runner, that is very admirable about how they've crafted this brand. They've crafted it based on sustainability. Obviously, it has to make money. Uh, like every enterprise, you can't last on goodwill. But then he realizes there's enough people on earth, you know, there's enough people on earth to buy your product and use it sustainably uh, and still make a profit. I mean, it's, it's a different take on how to do business. And if you've enjoyed uh, this episode, this 50th episode of the Wildcast Podcast, I'd really like to hear from all of you. You know, we've had 50 episodes of the podcast. Um, you can send me an email on my personal email, jpalipio at gmail.com. I'd like to hear what you've thought of the podcast uh, over this many seasons that we've had it. You know, 50 episodes, so many different guests um, over the last three years. And of course, I thank you for your patience and your time uh, listening to these episodes of me talking to a lot of other people, um, asking questions, being curious. Uh, Thank you so much for being there, being part of this journey to the 50th episode of the Wildcast Podcast. And here's hoping to more. And of course, I look forward to hearing from all of you. This podcast was uh, produced by myself and Tomonari Nakayama. So we're very thankful for the support that you've been giving the podcast to listening to it, uh, sharing it with your friends. Give us a rating on whatever platform that you listen to, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or, or SoundCloud, or whatever. And share it, you know, share it with your friends. Um, share this episode or 
any of the previous episodes that are pretty amazing guests as well. So thank you again for joining us on this journey with Killian Journey and with all the other guests we've had over the 50 episodes of the Wildcast Podcast.